Well, good morning, everybody. We are in the last week of our series in the life of Solomon, and we have a lot to cover, a lot to review, and a lot of kind of single puzzle pieces that still need to come together to form the more coherent picture. So we're not gonna waste any time. We're just gonna jump right in to the end of this series. Now, uh, in order to understand the life of Solomon, we must come to his story knowing that it takes part It's taking part in a much larger story, kind of the whole of Hebrew scriptures, the whole of the biblical narrative up until this point. And so that story begins in Genesis, page one of the Bible. God creates the world, it's good, and humanity is living in a garden-like paradise where God literally dwells with his people. Like there's no separation. God's space and human space are one and the same. God is living with his people in the garden. There's a mysterious serpent figure that is introduced and he tempts and deceives the first humans and ultimately the first humans um, fall for it. They don't uh, decide to obey God, but they decide to listen to the lies of the serpent. So it's very bad. They get kicked out of the garden. They are exiled from the place where they used to dwell with God. But in the midst of that bad news, there's still a little bit of hope because there's this promise. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, someday there is going to be a son of Eve who is going to come and strike at this serpent guy, this serpent figure. He's going to go for the the mortal wound. And so there is this hope and anticipation in the Hebrew scriptures, that one day someone's gonna come and defeat evil, this serpent figure. He's going to right the wrongs that we've done and ultimately, hopefully, that person then will be able to bring us back into the garden where once again we will dwell with our God and he will dwell with us. Now, flash forward many years after this point and go backwards from where we stand today, roughly 3,000 years, God tells King David something. He gives him a promise about his son. God says this to King David. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. So in one sense, this is just a promise that King David is going to have a a special son who's gonna have an awesome kingdom. But if you pay attention to the words, his kingdom is fundamentally different than other kings. It's an everlasting kingdom with an everlasting throne. And most importantly, this son of David is going to build the house of the Lord, the temple. Now this is huge because the temple isn't just like some simple place where you worship God. It is the place where God is choosing to live, where he's choosing to dwell. In other words, through the son of David, God is going to live and dwell with his people once again. And if you remember the way that the temple, the the interior design that we went over several weeks ago, the interior design of the temple is made to look like a garden. But it's not just any old garden because there's cherubim depicted, angels, supernatural beings, because the temple is the meeting place of heaven and earth. It's the meeting place of God's space and human space. 
So God is choosing to make a place on earth where he will dwell once again with his people, and it's depicted like a garden-like paradise. In other words, the son of David is gonna get us back to the garden, a place where we dwell with God, where we, where we will be forgiven of our sins. So this anticipation is building for this future sort of Messiah figure to come and deliver us and to, to restore what was lost. And then you check out the credentials of Solomon to see like, well, is this kind of, is this adding up? Like, is this Solomon the, the guy who we think he's gonna be? And it's like, check the credentials, yeah. Solomon is the Shalom King. His name, Solomon in Hebrew, Shlomo, it's the, it's, it's the verbal root that's related to the noun form of Shalom. So Solomon's name literally is like the verbal form of Shalom. He is the Shalom King. And Shalom means peace, yes, but it literally means to make whole. This is incredibly important. Solomon is the one who makes things whole. He is the Shalom King. And he's ruling and reigning in the city of Shalom, Jerusalem. So the Shalom king ruling from the city of Shalom. And he's doing so in a garden-like paradise called the promised land. God has given people Israel, and the description of Israel is like a garden paradise. It's a land of milk and honey and and fruit and pomegranates and dates. It's, It's a land of abundance. And then on top of that, inside this whole country that's described as a garden-like paradise, there is a super garden-like paradise where Solomon builds the house of God. And again, if you walk into the temple, it's meant to take you back to the garden. That's what all the imagery is doing. And why is it taking you back to the garden? Because God is living there. God's space and our space have a meeting point. Heaven and earth have a meeting point. God is living with his people again in the garden-like paradise. And there's a means, the temple and the sacrificial system that can assure you of forgiveness. Like all of this is, is, is making it out to be like Solomon's the guy who's gonna come and take out that serpent. Solomon does all of this while maintaining a Shema heart. If you remember when we went over that way back, I believe in week two, Solomon asked, not for necessarily for wisdom, although that's certainly a part of it, he asked God for an understanding mind is what it reads in most translations, but in Hebrew it's a Shema heart. And the word Shema goes back to Deuteronomy 6.4. It's a foundational verse in the Hebrew scriptures. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with the sum total of your being. That verse is called the Shema because the first word of hero Israel here is the Hebrew word Shema. So that whole section is referred to as the Shema often. So Solomon asks for a Shema heart and God gives it to him. The text says that Solomon loves God. And in that section where he's asking for wisdom, he doesn't only ask for a Shema heart. He says, help me to discern between good and evil. The first humans who were in the first garden didn't ask God for his help to discern between good and evil, good and bad. They decided what was right in their own eyes and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Solomon doesn't do that. He's in the garden, the dwelling place of God, and he has a Shema heart and relies on God's definitions of good and bad, good and evil. And lastly, through his wisdom, he's able to cut through truth and lies, life and death. And that sort of idea or principle is embodied most, embodied most probably profoundly in the beginning story of his life where, if you recall, two women are brought before Solomon and they're both claiming that this child that's before them is their son. 
So two, two mothers, they're saying, this is my child. One woman's saying it's mine, another woman's saying it's mine. There's no eyewitnesses, and there's this dispute of who's the rightful mother. And it's this shocking story where Solomon says, give me my sword, chop the baby in half, and give a half to each woman. It's like, whoa. And so one of the women says, yes, of course, chop the baby in half. We'll each take half. And then another woman goes, no, no, stop, immediately, stop, stop. Let the baby live. She can have her. She's the rightful mother. And then Solomon, in his wisdom, immediately knows who's the true mother. The mother was the one who cared for the life of the child and was willing to lose her child in order to preserve the life of the baby. And in doing so, that story sort of emblematically embodies this idea of Solomon being the Shalom king. He is the one who keeps things whole. Solomon makes it whole. And so the baby is not divided, the baby is not cut in half, it's preserved as a whole. Now, what's very difficult for readers of the Old Testament to sort of remember and understand is that Solomon is the only king who spends his entire reign ruling over a united kingdom, a united Israel. After Solomon's death, the kingdom divides. It's cut in half, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom is, it's confusing because the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel, but when the kingdom is united as a whole, that's also referred to as Israel. But there's typically, Israel is the north, and in the southern kingdom, you have Judah. So Israel north, Judah south, but when they're united, sometimes referred to as Israel as a whole. But after Solomon's life, the kingdom is cut in half, north and south. He's the only king who makes the kingdom whole. He's the Shalom king. He is the one who makes whole. Additionally, Solomon does all kinds of other awesome things. 1 Kings 4.20, it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. If you recall, this is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. We went over this in week two and three. So in, the, in the life of Solomon, the Abrahamic promises are coming to fulfillment. And there's enough food and drink and everyone's happy. This is like heaven. This is paradise. We have grocery stores, so we don't realize it, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, if everyone has enough food and drink to be happy, like, this is it. It doesn't get any better than this. It says, 1 Kings 4.24, that he had peace on all sides around him. Word for peace is shalom. If you are a citizen in Solomon's kingdom, you are engulfed in the shalom that he brings. You are surrounded by shalom. Another verse, and Judah and Israel lived in safety. There's no, there's no fear of, of war, invaders, attacks from enemies. They lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Everyone has their own little mini garden. Do you, like, do you see the imagery? It's, Israel is the promised land. It's a garden-like paradise. And then in the center of it is the temple, the place where God is dwelling with his people. And the temple is depicted as a garden-like paradise that bridges heaven and earth, and there's angels everywhere. So God's space is overlapping with human space. But in addition to it being Israel, the promised land, a garden-like paradise with a garden-like temple, every person has their own garden. You got your own fig tree and vine. It's paradise. Solomon has brought paradise to his people. Lastly, it says, thus, Solomon, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. No one's more rich or wise than this guy. 
and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments of myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Now, in one sense, you could just say, wow, a lot of people are bringing lots of presents. It's like Christmas all the time at Solomon's house. But it's more than that. The whole, like, the whole earth, the nations, are coming to pay tribute to God's appointed man. And when they come to Jerusalem to pay tribute to King Solomon, what do they see? The temple of the living God. In and through the reign of Solomon, the nations are beholding the glory of Yahweh in his temple. The nations are hearing of the God of Israel and they're paying tribute to his king. It's like a universal reign. Everyone is coming to, to, be, to hear the knowledge of Solomon and the God whom he serves. It's powerful, extremely powerful. So in the life of Solomon, you are seeing Eden reborn. God is dwelling with his people. There is mercy and forgiveness in the sacrificial system. You are living with the Lord, God's space, man's space. And so this is such a copy of Eden. Like it's exactly the same thing. But here's the problem. It's so exactly like the first Eden that the same things that happened in the first Eden are happening all over again. The mysterious serpent figure has snuck in and he has sown the seeds of destruction once again. And it was happening slowly but surely over the life of Solomon, so much that you, were, you couldn't even detect it. But given enough time, the serpent has laid the foundation for a great fall. Four to 500 years before the life of Solomon, the book of Deuteronomy gives a warning for future kings. There's not even a king of Israel yet, and Deuteronomy, four or 500 years before the time of David and Solomon, says, look, when you have a king, he's gonna, to, he's gonna need to behave in a certain manner. And this is what it says. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Okay, it's a really strange thing. It's like, well, you're gonna warn the kings. Don't let them get horses. They can't have lots of wives and watch out for silver and gold. And it kind of doesn't make sense because Solomon is actually given riches by God. Like, it, he, he tells him he's going to make him the wealthiest king. So, so, so like, what's going on? Each three of these items, horses, wives, silver, and gold, embody like a massive temptation into idolatry. So the first one, horses, that's dealing with chariots, and it's related to Egypt. Why? Because chariots were like the greatest weapon of the superpower Egypt in its day. So it's like the advanced missile system, and the superpower Egypt has it. The temptation is that a future king will begin to trust in his own militaristic might rather than trusting in the Lord. Secondly, it warns of many wives. Now, in the ancient world, what kings would do is they would make all kinds of political alliances by marrying um, women from different regions and different countries and kingdoms and all of that sort. And so what God is doing is he's saying, our kings won't do that. 
There is a biblical pattern laid out in Genesis 3. And the biblical pattern for sexual relationships is that there would be a man and a woman who would commit to each other in lifelong monogamy. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. But Solomon, rather than being faithful to one woman, will acquire excessive wives, like he will acquire excessive silver and gold. So it's not that horses are bad in and of themselves. It's not that sex is bad in and of itself, but there's a perverted version of those things that can exist and take you out. Third, it warns of excess silver and gold. Now again, the issue isn't Solomon having wealth because God gives him wealth. It's that he begins to trust and love his wealth. If you remember from last week, there's a story of Solomon making all these shields of gold. It's like, what's the point of that? It's, it's not for, for good defense. Gold is heavy and it's, it's malleable. It bends too easy. So you don't make, you don't want to, even if you could make a gold shield, it's not good for war. He was just putting these gold shields in his house, like to decorate it. It's an exaltation of man. Look at my wealth. So the warning is, do not seek out these things because there's a perverted, distorted version of these things that can take you out. So watch out for these three things. Now, what's funny is you could symbolically represent all three of these things by saying, watch out for power, sex, and wealth. Now, this, this is where it's like creepy. Because, you know, Deuteronomy is written four to 500 years before Solomon. Solomon lived 3,000 years ago. But the warning is, hey, there's good versions of these things, but there's distorted versions of power, sex, and wealth that will take you out. If you desire and lust after power, sex, and wealth, you will fall. Man, this old ancient book really isn't relevant anymore. Are you kidding me? Thousands of you, watch out for an unhealthy lust of sex, power, and money. Those things can take you out. So what happens in the life of Solomon? Solomon begins with this Shema heart. He loves God, but he loses his love of God, and then it's replaced with a love and lust for three things. Women, riches, power. The very three things Deuteronomy warned about. So Solomon has excessive, he, he, he's, he's driven mad in his lust and sexual appetite. He has a love for riches and power and wealth and he exalts himself. Even the description of his, his throne demonstrates that. And he has a, a love for power. If you remember from last week, Pastor Cody mentioned that he's acquiring all these chariots from where? Egypt, and then selling them to his enemies. He becomes like an arms dealer in the region, arming his enemies so that everyone's fighting with everyone. He's making money off of it. And he's trusting in the chariots of Egypt. Now, because Solomon begins to love after these things, his heart turns completely from God, and the end of his life is just one of the most tragic tales in all of Scripture. This is some of the last things we hear about King Solomon, the wise. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. 
So the women who he's married in this polygamous kind of world he's living in, they worship other gods and he begins to adopt their gods and not only worship them, but he builds them places of worship. Think of where Solomon was. Like, you could not get any higher than Solomon. He brings shalom. Everyone is engulfed in shalom. They have food and water. The dwelling place of of God is with man once again. And now he's building altars to false gods. Where did he do it? It says, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Do you know what the mountain east of Jerusalem is? It's the Mount of Olives. And don't picture like a giant mountain way far east of Jerusalem. It's right next to it. And so literally within eyesight of the temple, Solomon is worshiping false gods before the face of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Solomon is worshiping false gods. The idolatry is before the face of Yahweh. And what's even worse than that is that Um, the way the relationship between God and and his people is described is that of a husband and his wife. It's, it's, It's marital language. So Solomon is practicing idolatry before the face of Yahweh, but he's also participating in adultery before the face of the faithful groom. Doesn't get any worse than that. Doesn't get worse than that. So that is the great fall of Solomon the wise. Now, here's the thing. Solomon was going to remake Eden. The the temptation and the serpent came in and was victorious once again. And then something is set in motion by Solomon. Because here's the thing. If you don't deal with sin in your life, it's not just going to take you out. Your fall, your downfall, your failures will not just be felt by you. They will be absorbed by the people around you. And more often than not, they will have to be absorbed by the people you claim to love most in life. This is the great warning. It's not just our sins and it affects us. We have such an, an individualistic view of sin. Well, it just affects me. No, it doesn't. The consequences, the repercussions, the ramifications, the fallout fall upon everybody and usually it's upon the people you claim to love most. So what happens after the life of Solomon? What what does the next king, the son of Solomon, do? What is he like? At that time, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over Israel for 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So Rehoboam takes over, his son. You know, what type of guy is this guy going to be? If you had Solomon as a dad, you lived in that family, you saw those faults and failures and those sins, what's, like, what's Rehoboam going to be like? This is a little bit of his story. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. So Jerusalem is in the south. It's a part of the southern kingdom. It's in Judah. But right now, the kingdom is united. Under Solomon's reign, Israel and Judah are one. There's one united kingdom. 
So Judah's in the south, probably, I mean, Rehoboam's in the south. Everyone's probably made him king. And even though he has been given the kingship by his father Solomon, there's still tribes of Israel. So let me travel up north and make sure like everyone's on board. Let, let me make sure my kingship is assured. So he travels to the north so that everyone can make sure they know who the next true king is. And the people of Israel come to him and they say this, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Okay, new son, new king, and what's the first thing that the people say to the new king? Your father put a heavy yoke on us. Lighten the burden. Remember, Solomon was practicing forced labor. So they're saying, lighten the load on us. The yoke is too heavy. Your father put too much burden upon us. By the way, does that sound familiar? Uh, Does forced labor that's too heavy upon a people, upon God's people, sound familiar? This is Pharaoh-like behavior. Solomon was participating in Pharaoh-like behavior. He was a new Pharaoh to his own people. There was forced labor, and now they're crying out to the new king, his son, lighten the yoke, it's too much. Then Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to the people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, they will be your servants forever. In other words, Rehoboam goes away. He says to the people of Israel, come back in three days. Come back in three days. He goes and he talks to like his, the, the older advisors and they, they tell Solomon, serve the people. Serve them. Be a king who serves the people and they'll follow you. Verse eight, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. This is bad news. Um, okay, so a little side note. Um, oftentimes, when you are young, you think you're very, very wise, and you disregard the wisdom of those who were before you. This is usually bad, usually bad. So let me speak to like the young people. Uh, I know you think this doesn't apply to you, that you, you've got it figured out that the old people, they don't get the way the world works. The world's different than the world they grew up in. You got it right at 19. You figured it out. Okay. Usually, not always, the ones who've lived life longer have more wisdom. They've seen more of the world. They've experienced more. You should humble yourself and listen to them. Now, don't just think I'm picking on the young people completely because there's a principle here. Um, I'm talking about these young people, but there's people, there's some of you here today who are looking at me saying, you're young, you think you got it all figured out, I'm 20 years older than you, and guess what? There's people who are 20 years older than them looking at those people saying, man, you don't know nothing. I've been on God's green earth for 90 years, you don't know nothing. There's another important caveat, is that just because you're older doesn't mean you have more wisdom. Plenty of people who are older are foolish and lack wisdom. The point is that the older you get, the more opportunity you have to develop wisdom. 
And so young people, seek out people who have sought after wisdom who are older than you and humbly put yourself before them and listen to them. It's for your own good. In age, you can grow with wisdom. It doesn't necessitate the fact that you will have wisdom, but you have a better opportunity at it. Solomon listens to these old advisors and they're like, serve the people, Solomon. And then he goes and he talks to his boys, like the younger group who grew up with him. And so he talks to his boys. And what do they tell him? He said to them, Why do you advise, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little fingers thicker than my father's thighs, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." Rehoboam, go tell him what's up. You thought Solomon was bad. Stand up straight with your chest out. You go tell him what's up. You don't mess around. And the king answered. So the king comes back on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel of the old men that they had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. So you thought the labor was bad before. You thought the work was bad before. Now you deal with me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be worse. By the way, does that sound familiar? God's people cry out, this is too much for us. Pharaoh, oh yeah? Why don't you make bricks without straw now? Go find your own straw. Doubles the labor, doubles the yoke. Rehoboam is a pharaoh. He's pharaoh just like his father was. The cycle just passed on to him. Dad was like pharaoh to his people, and now I'm pharaoh-like to my people. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. In other words, what do we have to do with the house of David? They're just going to make us live miserable lives. They're going to put us in this forced labor. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was a taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So Rehoboam says, I'm going to double your labor, man. We're not making it easier. Bad news. You've waited three days. Here's the news. Israel is like, no, we're not having this. And so as Solomon sends the taskmaster over, they stone the guy. They kill him. And an attack on the king's representative is an attack on the king's authority. It's an attack on King Rehoboam himself. And so Rehoboam goes like, dude, all these people are against me. I don't have their favor anymore. So he flees back to Jerusalem, the capital city, and maybe there he goes, there, my forces are there, I can, I can quell the rebellion, or maybe they won't be able to overtake me in Jerusalem, or maybe he's just afraid that like, he's losing the, the vote of the people. It doesn't matter. He flees to Jerusalem for his life. And then this sad note in verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. 
Whenever the book of 1 Kings is written, the author is saying that even to this day, the kingdom is divided. The kingdom was only whole in the reign of Solomon. After that, you have the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, quick side note, Jeroboam was an enemy of Solomon and he fled for his life. And now that Solomon is dead, Jeroboam makes his way back. And what happens? They hear that Jeroboam has returned and they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Judah in the south, the 10 tribes of Israel in the north. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. In the south, Rehoboam. In the north, Jeroboam. Now a question arises though. Like, maybe this guy Jeroboam's a good dude. Solomon, who was setting up all these places of false worship and idolatry, he made an enemy out of him, so maybe he's a good guy. Maybe this Jeroboam in the north will do good. So, what is Jeroboam like? Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and bent Peniel, And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go after, go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Okay, this is a little confusing. This is what's happening. Jeroboam's ruling in the north, but he understands that the, the, the religious center of the people of Israel is still where? In Jerusalem, in the temple. So all of Israel, even though there's a divided kingdom, still must go to Jerusalem, Judah in the south, to worship at the temple. And Jeroboam goes, when they see the glory of the temple and the glory of the Lord there, they will know who God's man is and they will return to, wor- to worship Yahweh and they will return to submitting to Rehoboam and then they'll come and kill me. So what does he do? He's got a plan. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Does this sound familiar? He made golden calves. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and another he put in Dan. This thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not the Levites. Now, in the Mosaic law, to be a priest, you needed to be a part of the Levites. He doesn't have this. He doesn't have the temple structure. So he creates false temples, false places of worship, and a false priesthood to try and secure his kingship. Very bad. Very bad. And from there, the kingdom divides. Okay. We begin with Solomon, the Shalom king, ruling from the city of Shalom. And he is bringing about a wholeness and a unity that has never been known before in human history except in the garden. In Solomon, the north and south are one. There's a united kingdom, okay? But then that splits and there's a division. The kingdom is cut in two. 
But it's not just the north and south that were meant to be united that ultimately get cut in two. Remember, heaven and earth were one. In that God's space and human space was the same spot. In the Garden of Eden, God dwelt with humanity. In the temple that Solomon built, God chose to live in that so that there was a place on earth where his space and his presence and his personhood would touch our space. In the temple, God's space and our space touch, heaven and earth touch, and God once again dwells with his people. That's gonna split in half. And also, there is a unity and oneness and a wholeness in Jew-Gentile relations. Because remember, Solomon, the Jewish king, has peace on all sides, and he's not worrying about Gentile invaders and Gentile armies coming in. What are the Gentiles doing? The nations, the Gentiles, are coming to Jerusalem to pay tribute to the Jewish king and acknowledge the wisdom of the God of Israel. Solomon has brought shalom to Jews and Gentiles and they are hearing of the knowledge of the God of Israel. So in Solomon's reign, you have a unity between north and south, heaven and earth, Jew and Gentile. And now because the sins of Solomon being inherited by his son, everything is cut in two. The sword has cut the child in half. North, south, heaven, earth, Jew, Gentile. The baby didn't remain whole. Complete division. Now, what is the inheritance of the sons of Solomon? Well, we saw it in the inheritance of the son of Rehoboam, but what are Rehoboam's children like? What are Jeroboam's children like? Like, what are the patterns of behavior that they pick up from their fathers? Here's a little brief, like, lightning round summary. Here's one guy, one king, Jehoram, he kills his brother, 2 Chronicles 21.4. He thought his brothers might be a threat to his kingship, so he kills them all. Well, Ahaz, he worships the false god Baal and practices child sacrifice, 2 Chronicles 28.3. Omri does evil in the sight of the Lord, 1 Kings 16.25. Ahab, he builds altars to Baal and sacrifices his own sons to this false god, 1 Kings 16.34. Menehem, he kills all the pregnant women in this despair story that happens in the city of Tissas, 2 Kings 15, 16. Manasseh built altars to false gods in the temple and he also sacrificed his children. Manasseh builds altars in the temple of God. This is the legacy of the sons of Solomon. And in it, you just see cycles, Right? It's like the sin of the father is just inherited by the kids. And you see it on cycle, just play after play, generation after generation. How does this cycle end? This is the ending of the book of 2 Kings, the ending of the kings of Judah. Roughly four to 500 years after the life of Solomon. And in the ninth year of the reign, in the 10th month of the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine, it was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city 
And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city. Jerusalem is surrounded. There's a famine. There's no food. The men of war flee. But the army of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. They capture the king, they kill his sons in front of him, so that the last thing this king sees with his eyes is the murder of his own children. And they take out his eyes and take them off in exile to Babylon. Killing the sons is a way of removing the kingly line, by the way. It's like saying, whatever line or dynasty there was, it's done. The last thing you behold is that act. You're blind and you're taken as a prisoner to Babylon. Off into exile once again, which should sound very familiar at this point. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. The king's sons are dead. The king is blind, and the house of God burns. This is the legacy of the sons of Solomon. This is where it goes. This is how it ends which is a very haunting and stark warning for every single one of us today. When sin begins to creep into your life like it did Solomon, you better deal with it. Because if you don't, it will grow stronger and stronger. And you think in your wisdom that it will never overtake you. If Solomon, the wisest man on the face of the earth, can fall, so could you. You're not above it. And so when you see the seeds are being sown, the seeds of destruction, you have to deal with it. You can't belittle it. It grows and grows in strength to the point where Solomon the wise, you couldn't get any higher than that. He built the house of God. God was dwelling with his people in a garden-like paradise. Everyone was living in their own garden. And he fell and he turned his back from the Lord. Because if you don't, if you don't deal with this stuff, it's not just you who are go- is going to fall. Every statistic in the world will tell you that the parents' failures will be inherited by the children. And some of you are living, the cycles have been repeating in your family for generations and you're struggling just to break the cycle that was there in your family for five generations. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Life doesn't deal us all the the same hand. Sometimes we're dealt a poor set set of cards. And so some of you, you had great parents and you're like, hey, if I could just be the half half the person my mom or dad was, man, I'll, I'll be happy. But many of you know, man, you inherited some cycles, man, some bad sin cycles that have been going on for generations. And if you don't deal with it, it's not just going to take you out, it will take your kids out. I say this not to condemn anybody, to make anyone feel bad, because I know this room is filled with many people who have faults and failures in their past and you may be feeling guilty. I'm not saying this to judge anyone. I'm saying this to warn you. 
especially you young people, especially you young parents, especially you single people who are young, if you don't fix the problems in your youth, they just get stronger. They don't go away. And if Solomon could fall, you could fall. You're not above it. So, it's a lot of bad news. It's like these cycles just go on repeat again and again and again. Well, there's good news because we saw that Solomon fell and we've seen the aftermath of that fall. But the scriptures also say this, that says, God says, I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. So the sin is going to happen and it's gonna be inherited by the children, but this will not last forever. It's not going to last forever. 1,000 years after the life and death of Solomon, there is a very small group of people going around the Roman Empire declaring that their crucified leader accomplished this. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I want you to pay attention to that bold phrase that's also underlined, to unite. Just a small phrase, unite. That word in Greek is anakephaliosistai. That big giant word, anakephaliosistai, translates into English as unite, to unite. And that big word, it means to unite, it means something like to gather together, to bring together, to collect. Think of um, puzzle pieces being brought together to be, to be brought together to form a more whole and coherent picture. The first Christians are going around the Roman Empire making this claim that in and through that poor Galilean who died the slave's death on a Roman cross, in and through him, all things will be united under his banner. It's a radical claim, man, that the crucified man who died the slave's death, dying in agony on a Roman cross, he is going to unite things in heaven and on earth. And then you have to ask, like, well, what do you mean unite? Like, bring together, to make whole. What do you, what do you mean? Well, it's pretty specific. It's all things, but, the, but there's a logic to it. So um, when we say all things, we're talking about he can make whole, he can bring peace, he can bring together an individual, but he can also do this for, for marriages in male-female relationships. He can do it with racial relations between Jews and Gentiles and the people among the nations. He could do it with heaven and earth. So he can bring this unity under him at every level of the created order. Now, let me show you how the logic of this works, though. The first Christians were saying that this Jesus was not just a human being, that he was God himself. Now, why is that important? Because in Jesus, you now have a new location where heaven and earth meet. You have a new location where God's space is touching human space. Jesus, according to the first Christians, is a living, walking, breathing temple, which means wherever Jesus goes, heaven and earth are touching. God's space, God's domain, God's presence is touching our world. 
So in Jesus, you have the perfect unity between God and man. Humanity is joined with God himself, not in a temple, but in a person. In Jesus, God and humanity are united in a single individual. And because of what he does, the first Christians were saying that this place, this place where heaven and earth touch is doing something in the world. That this unity that's at the highest of all levels, heaven and earth, God and humanity, reverberates throughout every layer of the created order so that this one who unites heaven and earth, who unites God and man, could bring unity, shalom, and wholeness to individuals, to men and women, to marriages, to the nations. In other words, some of the first Christians might phrase it like this. Within the family of God, within the household of this crucified Lord, there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. There is one family under one Lord. He has made this oneness, this wholeness. He is bringing together all things in and of himself. Now, They didn't just say, well, he's a a northern Galilean who died the slave's death on a Roman cross, although that is true. His ministry was based in Galilee, but they also made sure to include his origin story because he wasn't born in some of those places that he first started ministering to. Let's go back to the Christmas stories. Where was he born? He is from the city of David because he is from the line of David. So Matthew, the first gospel in our story, in the New Testament, the first gospel, the very first verse, like what do they wanna make you know? Like this is the first verse. You wanna know about this Jesus? I'm gonna tell you in verse number one, like the most important thing about this guy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now to modern people, that doesn't sound like an interesting way to start your story, with a genealogy. Let me tell you who this guy's great, 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 great grandfather was. But for the first century Jewish Christians, this is how you begin the story. He is the son of David. He is the son of David. He is the true son of David. And he's not like the first son of David. He is the opposite of the first son of David because he is the true son of David. The first son of David lost his Shema heart and he began to love and lust after women and riches and power. What does the true son of David do? He loves his father till the very end. With his dying breath, he commits himself in faithfulness to his father. Before this, Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to be tortured, crucified, and killed. We find him in a garden. Does this sound familiar? He's in a garden, and there's a place where heaven and earth are touching. And he's tempted once again, right? Crucifixion is coming. A horrible thing is about to fall upon him. But what does he pray? Father, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will. I'm not going to do what I want. I will submit to you. Where does he do this at? Do you remember where the Garden of Gethsemane is located? It's at Mount Olives. At the very location that the first son of David built altars of false worship to Chemish and Molech, where the first son of David practiced idolatry and adultery before the face of Yahweh, this son of David will be obedient and faithful to the very end. Not my will, your will be done. And what do we see in his life? What do we see in his ministry? The first son of David 
lust after many women. The true son of David is faithful, 100% faithful to one woman, his bride, the church, his people. And he is faithful to his bride unto the very end. He's not like Solomon, he's different. He's also, he doesn't lust after riches. He willfully gives up his riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Christ is God. He exists in splendor and glory and majesty, but he doesn't cling to his riches. He puts them aside and goes down and becomes the lowest of low to become a servant who dies the slave's death on a cross. How can, how can, there now be one family, one family in God where there are both the rich and the poor and even though there are socioeconomic differences, they are, able to come, they are able to come one and be a part of the one family because Christ is both the rich and poor man. He creates all things, he owns all things. He has riches in heaven and splendor and glory but he lays it aside and adopts the position of the servant and slave. How can there be a family where there is rich and poor together in harmony because in Christ you see the unity in one person, heaven and earth, rich and poor. You see him being faithful to the one bride. And he also won't lust after power like Solomon did. He won't trust in chariots because on the night of his betrayal, when the soldiers come to arrest him, Jesus says this, do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Legions is a military term. It's a military term. He's like, you're coming to arrest me. Don't you know that I can just ask? And thousands upon thousands of supernatural beings will come down and give me defense. You, you're, one of these angels could take out a thousand of you. I can call down 10,000 upon 10,000. But he doesn't. He doesn't call down the power he willfully submits to his father in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the place where now heaven and earth are touching. So how could, how could the first Christian say there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free? Because Christ is the rich man who became poor. He is the one faithful to his bride. And how could he unite both slave and free? Because he is the one who freely gives up his life to die the slave's death on a cross. And in Christ, you are seeing the true son of David unite all things under his banner. There is now neither male nor female, Jew, Gentile, slave, or free. One family of God under one Lord, under one banner. Christ does this. And what does he do? By doing this, by not lusting after women, power, and riches, he is handed over to be crucified and killed. But in doing so, he is breaking the cycle of the kings because every other king trusted in those things. This king will listen to his father and be obedient to his father. So he goes in faithfulness unto death and in his death, he breaks the cycles of the kings of David, the sons of David. He is the first one to break the cycle. And it's not just the cycle of the sons of David. He breaks the cycle that every human being has participated all the way going back to the first human Adam 
because every human and every king and every person has trusted in the words of the serpent and has listened to those words and rebelled against God. Now there's finally someone, a king who breaks the cycle and he goes down into death and the cycle is broken. Therefore, sin shall not have control. Sin shall not have power. The enemy, the serpent, can no longer make accusation because this one did not sin and he broke the cycle. And because he was true and righteous, he was resurrected in power and glory. And on the third day, he rises. And on the third day, he doesn't come to his people with bad news that their burdens will be increased. But he comes on the third day and says, I give you grace, peace, forgiveness, and a freedom found in me that you cannot find anywhere else on earth. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes down and comes up, and on the third day, this king comes with good news for his people who are heavy burdened and heavy laden. So, what is the takeaway from this? There is one who defeats the cycles, who can break the patterns of sin. There is one who unites all things in him, but you have to go to him and you have to trust him because you are like the sons of David, the kings of old, the the first Adam. And I'm telling you, if you don't deal with stuff, it's going to take you out. And I know that's heavy. I know it's like... Give me some encouraging words. Here's my encouragement. Heed the warning of the life of Solomon. You have to deal with this stuff. It's not just gonna take you out. It will harm your children and your children's children. So what do you do? Well, there's tons of things you could do, but the number one thing I can tell you to do right now, the first step, according to the scriptures, is always confession. And that may be something as simple as today after service, confessing it to to one of our prayer leaders up front. It may be filling out a connect card, emailing the church, can I meet with the pastor? I need to talk about stuff. It may need joining a small group and you tell yourself, I'm joining a small group so that I can build some trust that in the next three or four weeks, I'm going to begin to share my struggles. And I'm gonna have other Christians remind me of God's grace and forgiveness and pray over me. But you have to deal with it. Sin holds its power in secrecy, so you have to deal with it. For your sake and the people whom you say you love most sake, you've got to deal with it. This warning is for everybody, but I want to particularly say it to the young people in the room and particularly the young men in this room. The sins of the Father are devastating. They are devastating. We need godly men who model themselves after Jesus, who submit to him. This is, everything I've said applies to every man and woman, no matter your age, but particularly in this culture at this time. We need to step up. And if you don't deal with it, you think it's all good, there's many people in this room who will tell you, I did the same thing and then 20 20 years later, it took me out. So start dealing with it now. The good news is, is there's someone who breaks the cycle. And in him, you can break the cycle. You can break the cycle. Because we're also in a room filled with people who broke the cycle. Because Christ doesn't give you an inheritance of sin and guilt 
like the sons of David gave to their children. Christ gives you an inheritance of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He gives you his spirit to empower you to fight the sin in your life. And in his spirit and in his strength and in his grace, you are more than a conqueror. You can deal with this by his grace and his mercy and his spirit. But you gotta go towards him, not away from him. And so the good news is Christ is here with us offering grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so before we enter into communion, let us remind ourselves of what the true son of David has done, who he is. The true son is called out of Egypt not to become like Pharaoh, but to defeat him. He defeats the evil tyrant and the evil one who is behind all corrupt Pharaohs. The true son of David will have the nations bow before him, not bow before their gods. The true son of David is faithful to one wife, his bride, the church. The true son will not cling to his majesty, but give it up in order that he might give beggars us his inheritance an inheritance not of sin, guilt, and shame, but of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Whether you're 80, 90, or 15 years old, you come to him, and he gives you an inheritance of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and he gives you his spirit to wage war on the sin in your life. Do it. It is worth it. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is the folly of the son of David but the wisdom of of the Son of God, that he, would say, that he would seek us and give us beggars his inheritance. Let's stand as we take communion.